I'm Liz, your host and the wife and mom behind Unedited Motherhood. Together, we'll talk about all the struggles that we face as adults. Nothing is off limits. We'll uncover important truths and maybe even learn some tips to make our lives a little simpler and a lot more enjoyable. Thanks for joining me. Sometimes it can be difficult to find all of your favorite healthy pantry items at the same grocery store, or even visiting two or three stores. With your Thrive Market membership, you can find any healthy snack or pantry item you could ever want. You can shop by gluten-free, dairy-free, organic, AIP, vegan, and more. Thrive Market has something for everyone. And not just something, lots of things. They sell cookies, pasta and pasta sauces, salad dressing, nut butter, milk alternatives, granola, cooking and baking oil, coffee, soup, cereal, jelly, sugar and sugar alternatives, chocolate chips, crackers, spices, dried fruit, nuts, and more. In addition to more than 2,700 food items, they also carry supplements, cleaning supplies, makeup, toiletries, and more, all on the natural spectrum. I have been using Thrive for over three years, and I still look forward to getting their boxes in the mail. Every order over $49 ships free, always. In addition, you can earn extra Thrive credit by supporting different featured brands each month. Not only do they have some of the best items on the market, but with your Thrive Market membership, you get these items at a discounted rate, making them cheaper than you could find them at the grocery store. Use my link in the show notes to receive 25% off your first order. Hello, happy Tuesday. I hope you guys are off to a great start this week. It is currently snowing. I think this is going to be the biggest snow that we've had all season. Super exciting. We already have like four inches on the ground and the snowmen that we had from our last snow are their bottom ball is about halfway covered up. Pretty cool. So Today, we are finishing our Let's Talk Baby series with sleep. During the course of diving into infant sleep to prepare for this episode, I accidentally stumbled upon and opened Pandora's box. Now, there was already a lot that I knew about infant sleep and a lot more that I wanted to know, which is why I did this episode in the first place. Uh, But I found so much useful and important information um, that I did not expect to find. And I wish there was a way for me to share everything that I learned in one podcast episode. But unless I went all Joe Rogan on you and made a marathon episode, it would be impossible. And even then, I would have to do a lot of condensing. So instead, my plan is to cover as much as I can. Um, in an easily digestible format. And then down the road, um, I'll definitely be revisiting this topic uh, in some deeper capacities. So let's get started. Uh, So before having kids, I hadn't thought much about infant sleep. Uh, I was familiar with stereotypical baby and sleep associations regarding how poorly most babies slept, and then the ironic phrase, sleep like a baby, but I had no idea how convoluted the thoughts and ideas about infant sleep had become over the years. 
when I was pregnant, the usual advice started rolling in, uh, people offering their thoughts and expertise regarding babies and how to get them to sleep um, and behave well. And the journey our family has been on for over four years now in regard to baby in sleep has been hilly, to say the least. Um, there's a lot that I wish that I had known before having kids. And every mom or dad feels that way at some point um, about something in parenthood. Um, My hope for this episode is that you hear something that helps you wherever you're at on your kid's sleep journey or that you're able to share this information with somebody else. I understand that this is a very sensitive topic for some parents and I don't want you to be offended by anything that I share. Uh, I know everybody's at a different place um, with their awareness and what doing what's best for their families. My position personally has changed over the years, and I am very passionate about the subject. In doing this episode, I'm wanting to enlighten and inspire and maybe challenge you a little bit, but definitely not judge or condemn you for where you're at on your parenting journey. None of us is perfect, and we're all just doing the best we can. So with all that being said, let's dive in. As new parents, we are guided to believe that the sooner baby sleeps through the night, the better. This has become a metric at which baby sleep success is measured. The thing is, it isn't natural for babies to sleep without waking at night. There are several reasons that baby sleeping through the night is promoted. Um, The idea is that it's linked to better cognitive function and that babies are getting a better quality of sleep Um, And also, we do it for ourselves, right, so that we can sleep through the night. While this is understandable from a tired parent's perspective, it doesn't change the fact that what you're trying to achieve by having your baby sleep through the night is not normal. As parents, it's important that we understand what normal infant sleep is supposed to look like and to change instead our expectations accordingly. Until about 200 years ago, it was the norm for parents to sleep with their children. And it still is the norm for most of the world. However, in Western society, things began to change about 200 years ago. The idea that infants should sleep independently started to gain momentum. By the 1930s, parental success was measured by how well babies slept independently, including the number of wakes in the middle of the night, and the lengths of the stretches of their sleep. This was noted as a developmental goal for the baby. There are actually control studies that compare babies that were, you know, sleep trained to be independent in their own room against babies that were not. And the results showed that at the end of a sleep training and several months down the road, Things like quality of sleep, cognitive development, and the amount of times a baby woke at night did not improve. Although babies weren't crying when they woke up, they were still waking just as many times throughout the night, and the cognitive function had not improved over the control group. So there's definitely some interesting research to do if you're curious about um, kind of the research and the evidence that has been used to promote independent baby sleep. Um, There's also evidence that being close to mom can help regulate their breathing, their blood pressure, and their heart rate. Newborns struggle to do this independently, and 
with prolonged stretches of time away from parents, um, this can cause those little babies to have trouble doing those things and cause an increased risk for infant death. So do we know why originally parents were guided away from bed sharing and co-sleeping? Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that cribs came about in the 1800s, the same period of time that parents were told babies should be sleeping independently. That idea that babies won't learn to sleep on their own if we don't teach them is cultural and not scientific. Babies are born knowing how to sleep on their own. They did it in the womb for months. Um, it, their environment changes when they're born, but they don't need to be taught how to sleep. They just need to be supported through their sleep journey. There have been studies done that show there's evidence that bed sharing increases the risk of infant death, which is why it was demonized. However, almost all infant deaths that occurred during bed sharing were in conjunction with a history of parental drug use or unsafe sleep conditions like sofas or water beds or other things in the bed. This is why it's important to utilize safe bed sharing techniques, which we'll talk about, and to be aware of potential dangers. Because bed sharing has been so badly shamed, nobody is talking about it um, or admitting that they do it, and not even to talk about how to do it safely. This has led to unsafe bed sharing, which is something that nobody wants to happen. This kind of sounds like the breastfeeding and formula situation, doesn't it? Remember how doctors were talking about how formula was now better than breast milk um, and society turned away from breastfeeding and now we have a whole generation of moms that weren't shown how to breastfeed or the importance of breastfeeding in breast milk and they had no support to even try. Um, it's really sad. As parents, we need to take back control of how to raise our children Instead of believing everything we're told from books, doctors, and well-meaning family and friends, we need to unlearn the lies that we've been taught over the years and lean into our maternal intuition and study what generations before us were doing and learn from history. So we talked a little bit about bed sharing. I want to do a brief history of sleep training. Uh, there's a very interesting article that I'm going to link on the blog in the show notes about the history of infant sleep in the U.S. and the conditions in which parents began to be more susceptible to indoctrination and other outside influences. It's fascinating and very eye-opening. actually dates back to the Industrial Revolution when families were moving away from smaller, um, closer-knit areas and branching out into the big city for these new jobs that were coming up. And without the close sphere of influence from um, generations before them and, you know, parenting being kind of handed down through the ages, there was a lot more outside influence, which started to kind of turn the tide in how parents were influenced to raise their children. So sleep training started, um, in, like I said, in the 1800s, the first Notable voice in regards to this was Luther Emmett Holt. He published a book in 1894 um, and about parenting, and then he continued on to write several more after that. But he changed the pediatric field in the late 1800s. He implemented a lot of different things. He was also responsible for creating the medical chart where physicians would write notes on a patient's bedside clipboard, which ended up being pretty cool. 
However, this does not mean we should regard everything he said or did with equal enthusiasm. He, like many great men and intellectual individuals, had flawed thoughts as well. He was a supporter of reproduction through eugenics, for example. But listen to this. His book included a schedule of activities such as toilet training and sleep training to be learned at specific ages and for meals to be at regular hours um, to prevent disease. (laughs) He advised that babies under six months old should never be played with and the less of it at any time, the better for the infant. They are made nervous and irritable, sleep badly, and suffer from indigestion. Um, despite the fact that he hadn't raised any children of his own before publishing all of this information, um, most of the information that he shared in this book was based off of lecture notes that he had acquired from one of the nurses in his hospital. They weren't from his own research. It's a little troubling, right? So then the next guy was just a few years later, also in the 1890s. Um, His name is John B. Watson. Um, He was actually a psychologist. His overarching viewpoint for child rearing and child psychology is that the mother shouldn't show her babies too much love as he believed love to be conditioned. His philosophy when it came to um, child rearing was behaviorism. It's a book that he wrote. He discussed his thoughts on what language really is, which talks about memory and emotion, and it's the method that he used for child rearing. Um, But throughout all of this, he uh, believes that there are three emotions that were conditioned and that we were not born knowing how to experience organically fear, rage, and love. So he believed that love was more of a response um, to the actual act of what love was elicited by, like being tickled, patted, or stroked, smiles and laughs, and other affectionate things. He believed it wasn't um, at specific people, but only to the behavior, and that they were conditioned to respond to that behavior So because the mother's face is progressively associated with the patting and the stroking, the baby would become conditioned to elicit feelings of affection toward the mother um, and that that was not actual love for the mother, but that he was conditioned to feel that way. If you're interested, there's a lot more you can learn about him online. Benjamin Spock was the next one. He had a much gentler approach. His whole parenting approach was love-based, and he was criticized as being too permissive, um, although he didn't feel that that was the case. And then to kind of round out the sleep training circle of influence here, we have Ferber and Weisbluth. Um, They, if you know anything about sleep training, probably don't need much of an introduction. Um, Ferber is a method... People call it ferberizing, where you um, put the baby down to cry and then you visit it after so many minutes and then you go back after so many minutes and the next day you go in after more minutes and more minutes until eventually you're not going in at all. Um, But you still leave the baby to cry indefinitely. Um, And then Weissbluth's method is extinction. Weissbluth's method is extinction. 
It's the most popular and the most controversial method today. Um, but that's just leaving a baby to cry indefinitely and not going in until the designated wake time, even if the baby does cry for four or five hours or all night. So I guess my point with sharing all of that, there's, there's a lot more to be learned there. All of these guys wrote books, multiple books, and I would love to go into more depth on um, the scientific evidence or the lack thereof um, in the first two gentlemen's cases um, that they used to share their information. One of these guys even said that he regretted speaking on the subject at all because he realized he didn't know enough to make a good impact. And um, it's great when you realize those things too late, right? Um, but I know this is very controversial and I know it's very touchy, but I do think it's important to recognize that a lot of this research and a lot of this advice that we're getting now to sleep train does not come from decades of evidence that proves that it makes a healthy impact on the baby. Um, even a mom with postpartum depression that was studied, she experienced better health immediately after the baby was sleep trained and sleeping independently, but showing that six months later that depression had returned and she was not in any better of a place once the baby was sleeping on its own. So there's just a lot of conflicting um, research, and I encourage you, if it's something that you're interested in, to dive a little bit deeper into that um, because there's a lot of great information out there. So now I want to talk a little bit about uh, nursing on demand uh, because this does tie into baby sleep, and I think a lot of people that decide to sleep train, they also put their babies on a schedule because... You can't nurse on demand and have a loose baby kind of feeding day when you're trying to get them to sleep specific hours and using a specific method. So nursing on demand, because of that, is a very touchy subject. Over the last about 100 years, moms have been encouraged not only to get their baby sleeping independently, but also on that schedule, especially with heavy integration of women in the workforce. It became more manageable for parents to have their babies on an eating sleeping schedule. While that sounds like a good thing, babies aren't like adults um, where they thrive on equally three-sized meals a day. We all know babies need to eat more often than that, especially when they're little. But it's also important to understand that babies don't always need the same amount of milk at each meal. Um, as a general rule of thumb, they probably hover around the same amount during you know, a normal developmental period. However, there are definitely exceptions to this. Um, when babies are going through growth spurts or developmental periods, their sleep and their feeding patterns will change. They may cluster feed or they may sleep more, increasing the time between each feeding. Another time these patterns will change is if baby is teething or has a cold or doesn't feel good. Um, because for several months, babies rely on their mothers for comfort. It's natural for them to want to nurse even if they aren't hungry, if they're scared, tired, in pain, or just wanting to be close to you, it's totally normal for them to want to be skin to skin and likely at the breast if you're breastfeeding. If you combine all of those exceptions um, and sprinkle them out across baby's first year or so, their feeding and sleep needs may be changing daily. And while this makes things complicated, they don't have to be. By choosing to nurse on demand, 
You're nurturing your baby's innate needs and fostering a safe environment for them to learn how to be cared for and loved and eventually become independent. A popular idea about getting babies to sleep independently is nursing them right when they wake up as opposed to nursing them to sleep. Um, This is the feed-wake-sleep cycle that's promoted by BabyWise. Um, It's a book and, and baby sleep and schedule method written by two pediatricians. However, this method doesn't take into consideration the fact that mama's milk contains melatonin and tryptophan, both of which, of course, help babies get to sleep or help anybody get to sleep for that matter. Um, This isn't a coincidence. Um, Nursing to sleep is a biological norm and one that has been carried and passed down century upon century. The idea that babies should not be nursed to sleep is the experiment and the new thing. Nursing babies to sleep may seem like a lot of work, but if you're willing to practice safe bed sharing or co-sleeping, it'll go from overwhelming to a lot easier really fast. Another way that parents get their babies to sleep is by baby wearing. Um, This is especially during the day or when you're out and about. Um, There are some awesome baby carriers on the market today. Soft and stretchy and flexible. Others, you know, more structured, keeping baby um, supported in one position. For the first several months of my son's life, eye contact napped with him. Sometimes this meant I would take a nap with him laying down. And other times I would put him in my Solly wrap or my ring sling. He absolutely loved being close to me. It's very stabilizing and comforting for babies to feel their mother's heartbeat. Also, when they're in the womb, they're normally sleeping when you're moving and then awake when you're sleeping. So when you have them in the wrap and you go about your normal thing, you know, your normal day doing dishes or walking or working or whatever, um, that kind of helps keep baby asleep because that's how it was when they were in the womb. So that's another way that you're helping them transition into our world. Another practice people have been using for centuries to help babies sleep independently is swaddling. Uh, While this is an effective method at keeping babies asleep, it may not be the best method. What a swaddle does by keeping the arms immobilized uh, subdues the startle or the moro reflex. Um, This reflex, along with other infant reflexes, is extremely important to proper infant development. To learn more about this, I will share um, an account on Instagram. It's called On Track Baby, and I will link it in the show notes and on the blog, or you can just look up the handle. Uh, when babies are born, their central nervous system is working around the clock to develop properly. The startle helps baby's nervous system decide what threatens their survival and what doesn't. For example, like a door shutting or hearing somebody cough or hearing a train go by or hearing the wind blow. Every time that happens when the baby startles, they are able to analyze whether or not this is threatening to them or not so that over time they can work past this reflex and know when to panic and when not to. If we subdue that reflex, we don't allow that natural response to occur this can cause uh, sensory events in the future to be overreacted to. So if you subdue their ability to react when those noises happen, um, 
or it doesn't have to be a noise, but other sensory things as well to happen where um, prolonging their nervous system's ability to work past that reflex. So when they're older, they are likely to still overreact to other sensory events. Um, and this can cause, you know, sensory issues um, and an imbalanced nervous system. Whether it's something they see, hear, touch, etc., it can cause them to be light sleepers in the future. When babies aren't able to work through it as an infant, it can cause sensory processing disorder in childhood. If you swaddled your baby and you're wondering if your child may now be suffering from sensory processing disorder, um, there's actually a resource online um, by the STAR Institute, and they have a checklist that can help you um, assess your child's behavior and move forward. And they also offer a free intake session where you can talk to a STAR team member with any questions and information on what treatment would look like. I've actually linked both of those on the blog and in the show notes. Now, one of the primary reasons parents in the West aren't bed sharing is because of the ominous SIDS. The term SIDS was formed in 1969 by a pediatrician. If you, uh, if you look at some of the practices that were put in place throughout the 50s and 60s, specifically in the science field, you might be able to draw some of your own personal conclusions about some of the contributing factors to SIDS. Um, that might be worth looking into if you like to research and are open-minded. And we'll just keep moving right along. Uh, we already talked about the history of sleep training and a little bit about bed sharing, but since forever, babies have slept with their mothers. So even though over the last couple hundred years, Western society has been moving away from bed sharing, Babies, since the history of forever, have slept with their moms, and in many cultures, with their father and siblings as well. All across Asia, Africa, Latin America, there are dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of countries that practice co-sleeping, and anything else to them is foreign. Most of these cultures believe it's irresponsible and even dangerous to have their infants in a different room. Uh, because their babies are born or because babies are born not knowing how to self-regulate their breathing and their heart rate and their blood pressure. Studies reveal that proximity to mom helps babies do just that and that's why it's so important for them to be near their mama all the time. But because some experts recommend having moms sleep separate from baby beginning as early as day one, this is one reason that infant death occurs in babies. Being so far away from mama at a young age um, can keep them from being able to regulate their breathing or their heart rate and pass away. The fact is, no mother wants this to happen to their baby. Parents want what's best for their kids. I truly believe that. That's what makes this topic so touchy, but also so important. Western culture has been so misled in regard to what's best for our little ones being manipulated or fear-mongered by experts and salesmen in disguise as people wanting the best for your children. But the fact of the matter is nobody wants what's best for your child more than you. And as a parent, you should be skeptical of advice that anybody gives you, even if it's somebody you trust, because your motives are always going to be more pure about your child than theirs is because it's not their child. So it's 
you know, it's important to be educated and to make your own informed decisions. So just like there's safe bed sharing, um, there's also unsafe bed sharing, which is largely the reason bed sharing is seen the way it is today. Uh, While safe bed sharing is amazing and an incredible experience, unsafe bed sharing, like we just talked about, can be detrimental. So it's important to make sure you know the do's and the don'ts before bringing your little one into bed with you. So while it's absolutely biologically normal to bed share with your babies, it's important how to do so safely. So we'll talk about that. If you can fight past all of the misinformation online, you can find lots of helpful and practical advice on how to practice safe bed sharing. There are many amazing resources all linked in the blog and in the show notes, including uh, James McKenna's book, Safe Infant Sleep. He kind of coined the term breast sleeping. Um, And then the La Leche League International also has some great information. I'm linking two posts by them um, as well. There's a quicker resource that they offer, one of the posts I'm going to share, that you can find easily online by searching for the Safe Sleep 7. And you'll probably find this from multiple sources. But it includes a catchy song to row, row, row your boat um, that you can sing to remember the tips. And there's also a simple infographic that shares that same info. Utilizing this information and implementing these guidelines can make for a safe and wonderful bed sharing experience for your family. But of course, bed sharing is not for everyone. Every family has different needs and there are other ways to co-sleep. You don't have to have baby in the bed. Uh, Proximity to baby is the most important thing. So you could have a bassinet or a sidecar sleeper, or if your room is large enough, you could even put baby's crib in your bedroom. Whatever you decide, Make sure you utilize all the information at your fingertips to make the best decision for you and your family. So the idea of following your maternal instincts, kind of like I talked about, may seem foreign and elusive with all the other influences out in the world, but it's really not. Western society has drilled into our brains that we need guidance and we need to be told how to raise our children from newborn and beyond. But the truth is, That's not the case. Our species, like other animals, were designed with biological instincts for men and for women. Uh, People have been raising children without intervention for generations. If you're having trouble figuring out what's a natural maternal instinct and what is outside influence or regurgitated from propaganda... Take a minute to challenge yourself on it without being defensive. Um, Try to be objective, look inward, and take some time to consider all of the potential paths and outcomes. Talk to your spouse and choose the path that most aligns with the mother that you want to be. For me, this moment happened with my second child. We were attempting to sleep train like we had with our first. Uh, Our Our first baby didn't give us much of a fight when we trained her. We used the BabyWise method um, where you feed the baby when they wake up and then you play and then you put them down for sleep while they're awake but tired but not overtired. Special perfect timing. You've heard that um, drowsy but awake phrase. So we did this for three days. She cried. A lot, but what you're supposed to do is 
leave them to cry until their designated wake period for naps. Um, and even for bedtime, but then after a reasonable amount of crying, which is ambiguous, you can comfort them and put them back down or just comfort them without picking them up. And there's actually been, um, research that shows that visiting your child during this time of distress and then leaving them again does not actually help because they think you're coming in to rescue them. And so when you leave without rescuing them, they're left the same as before you came in. Um, But anyway, we used this method. We thought we were doing the right thing. We'd had somebody recommend this method to us that had had great success and they'd gotten it from somebody else that had had success. And our daughter uh, ended up taking to it within a couple of days and went down for, you know, sleep during the day and at nighttime pretty easily. By three months old, she was sleeping 12 hours at night and then by six to nine months was taking two two hour naps during the day and continued to do that well past a year old. Um, we were so astounded by this great success that with our son, um, we were willing to try it again. Uh, from the first nap, we tried to get him to sleep independently. Um, there was, there was a knot in my stomach. Um, I was thinking to myself, this worked with our first, she slept great for years. So we know we did the right thing, right? Why do I have this crappy feeling inside? Why isn't it working the same way? Why, why do I have so much turmoil? Why won't he go to sleep like his sister did? Um, it just didn't feel right. But I, you know, I pushed on my husband and I had talked about it and made the decision that this would be best for our whole family. And looking back, I can see that at the time, um, we rationally came to this decision and we thought we were making the best decision that we could. Um, Where we failed was our lack of understanding um, baby's needs um, and baby's biological norms regarding sleep and even development. It didn't occur to us that maybe our baby, maybe our expectations were a little irrational and didn't reflect what baby's needs were or that what might be best for us wouldn't be best for the baby. Um, Does that make us bad parents? No. Does it mean we had some learning to do? Absolutely. Uh, One of the reasons people have a hard time with this topic is because it's become socially unacceptable to not have all the answers. And I'm sorry, but nobody has all their ish together And keeping it to yourself doesn't help you or anyone else. As parents, especially new parents, there's a lot to know. And we're not going to have all the answers. We're probably not going to have most of the answers. Uh, Ask your parents or your friends or your spouse's parents. No one has had all the answers when they were raising their children. Um, it's okay to talk about things that we're struggling with and acknowledge that maybe what we're doing isn't what right, what's right, but that we want to learn and, and continue to make better decisions, especially in regards to parenting, but in, but in all facets of your life. Um, the topic of infant sleep being taboo has had a negative effect on parents, but also the poor babes. So I think that's a good place to stop. 
Um, there's a lot more that could be said about this topic and even a lot more important information to share about this topic. Um, but I think I've given you guys enough to chew on, um, for today. Um, there are several, um, supportive influencers out there that have dedicated their career to studying evidence-based science, um, in regards to infant sleep and how best to support babies and not only infant sleep, but, um, breastfeeding and their development and all of their innate needs. Um, so I am linking all of them in the show notes and on the blog, and hopefully, um, you find those resources super helpful to you. If you have a baby, um, or even a toddler, these pages, um, have a wealth of information. They're very supportive. They're very positive. They're not condemning or judgmental at all. Um, and they promote you deciding what's best for your family, giving you some tools and some information that you can use to help you make your decisions, but ultimately empowering you as a parent to follow your instincts and read your baby's cues to do what's going to be best for your family. And on that note, I think I will go ahead and wrap us up. Next week, we have a special guest that is going to be talking to us about gardening. Um, It may seem a little out of place given that we have tons of snow outside and we're in the middle of February, but if you're going to start with seeds... Um, You're going to need to be thinking about that soon, if not already, to get those indoor planters going. So stay tuned. Tell all your friends. I have a gardening expert on next week, and she may be embarrassed by that. I'm sorry, Heidi, but she has been gardening for decades and is actually writing her own online course, which I'm hoping that she'll tell us about, and she is going to share Lots of great information with us on how to prep a garden, how to take care of a garden, how to close your garden out for the season, and we'll hopefully talk more about growing specific, uh, maybe some difficult and some easy plants as well. So have a great week, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday.